Welcome to A Better HR Business, the podcast that looks at how HR consultants and HR tech firms grow their businesses and how they help their employers to get the best out of their people. Remember, for show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back to the A Better HR Business show. Thanks for joining me again. Now, years ago, I was a fresh-faced young HR graduate in an international, very rules-based company when my first mentor gave me a copy of a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, written by Stephen Covey. Now, the book had a profound effect on my thinking and on my subsequent career in human resources. It seems I wasn't the only one. The book has sold more than 40 million copies in 40 languages worldwide and remains one of the best-selling non-fiction business books in history. Now listed on the New York Stock Exchange, the Franklin Covey Company is considered by many as the world leader in helping organisations achieve results that require lasting changes in human behaviour. And I'm delighted to be joined today by the company's Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership, Scott Miller. Scott, thanks very much for joining me today. Hey, Ben, my honour. Thank you for the platform. Great to see you. And whereabouts are you based well, you know, so our, our company headquarters is here in Salt Lake City, Utah, nice. and I'm privileged to uh, live here in Salt Lake. It's a gorgeous place. I'm from Florida originally, but I've been, um, been uh, all over the world with the company, lived in London for a while, Chicago for six years, and I find that I love uh, the Utah climate. There's no humidity. So I've, uh, like, uh, like you, transplanted, built a family, and uh, we're here in Salt Lake. Nice, nice. So you don't like humidity. I believe you guys have an office in Brisbane in Australia, right? We do, which is why I'm out of this office and I'm not that office. Although <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, I've been there a few times. Yeah, it's a great yeah. place. Yeah, yeah. Great All right, so folks, Scott is a fascinating guy. He hosts Franklin Covey's a leadership series called On Leadership with Scott Miller, which includes a webcast, podcast, and newsletter that features interviews with renowned business titans, authors, and thought leaders. And it's distributed to more than 6 million business leaders worldwide. Scott keeps busy also by authoring a weekly leadership column for Inc. magazine. Now, I'd like to turn to the business itself, and also you've got a book out, which is a fascinating read. Can we go wind back the clock a little bit and you give us a background? Because you've got a kind of funny background like myself, a bit of HR and a bit of marketing combined. So you were, I believe, CMO in the company prior to this role. Is that correct? That's right. I joined the company almost 25 years ago as a frontline salesperson. I did a four-year stint with the Disney company. Uh, They invited me to leave, which is the nice way that Disney says get out. So after after a great four-year run at Disney, I found myself looking for employment. The The company hired me. And I sold our leadership development solutions for the first 10 years, became a, became a sales leader, general manager, came back to headquarters, was the chief marketing officer for about eight years. And uh, like I've done pretty well in my career, I disrupted myself <laughs> and then moved out of the chief marketing officer role into the executive vice president of thought leadership and then sort of writing books and podcasting, kind of similar to yourself. I've actually had nine careers inside of Franklin Covey in 25 years. And I think that's probably what's kept me around. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's, that's a great lesson for many company leaders on how to retain key staff. That's for yeah. sure. I'll come back to the thought leadership concept in, in a moment, but the sales role is very interesting because I heard you talking about this on your podcast, in fact, and you shared some leadership insights in terms of the transition from a individual contributor role to a, a leader role. Can you explain what happened there in that transition? Well, it was rocky. 
I mean, I okay. think, I, I think, I, I, you know, a couple of premises. I think not everybody should be a leader of people. I think way too often people are lured into a leadership role versus led. You know, typically we, we, we promote the top producing salesperson, right, or the most creative digital designer, the most efficient dental hygienist, and rarely, rarely do they actually have the competencies to become a, a great leader. Same with myself. I was the top salesperson in the division, and I got promoted to be the sales leader over my peers, over people, quite frankly, who were even more competent than me, who were more tenured. For whatever reason, the company chose to um, promote me, probably because my sales were consistent and large and retention was big in terms of my own client base. Client base. And so I went on a bit of a reign of terror the first couple <laughs> of months. You know, I, I didn't realize at the time, Ben, that a leader's job is to get work done with and through other people. And that's a mindset shift that is not, I don't think, well known to most people. Not to me. I thought my job was to turn everybody into mini-me's, right? Turn, turn everybody into little Scott Miller's, the way, that, the way that I got results, when in fact my job was to have them achieve the same results that I was achieving, but with their skills, with their fears, with their passions, and, and, and did not go well. I had some great stories in the book that I share that management mess to leadership success. When I say great, I mean horrifying, as in don't repeat, <laughs> because I learned a lot. It took me, honestly, longer than it should have to realize as a leader, your job is to build culture. Your job is to recruit and retain talent. Your job is to give feedback on people's blind spots. And your job is to get work done with and through them. And that requires a different level of patience. It requires consistency. It requires empathy, listening. All talents I lacked coming <laughs> into a leadership role. I love it. I'm sitting and nodding. I took a step out of HR early in my career, mainly because I thought I knew it all. You know, I'm here, I am coaching people on how to do HR properly. So I thought, well, I should go and do this myself into an operational role. And wow, it was, it was different. So that's great to hear someone else going through the same struggles. Most definitely. I think I have become a better leader after a couple of decades into it. But I also would repeat that refrain. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. I think it's a bit of a disservice that the leadership development industry has foisted onto companies, right? Is that not everybody should be an anesthesiologist. Not everybody should be a commercial airline pilot. I think there is a large segment of people that become leaders for the wrong reason and they realize, oh, I had no idea. This was about giving feedback, firing people, right? About sitting down and coaching nonstop. It's not for everyone. Leadership can be unrelenting and unrewarding and it's certainly not gratifying short term. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. And can you tell me about the, the CMO role? There's a lot of change, I imagine, in any organization across eight years. Can you talk us through some of the journey and how did the company evolve and grow in that time? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Franklin Covey's been around for four decades, right? We started as the, as a, 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 the planner company, right? The paper planner company, wildly mm. successful in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. It then merged. The Franklin Quest company merged with the Covey Leadership Center. Yeah. These were kind of arch rivals, right? Stephen Covey's leadership development firm. So back in 1997, we became the Franklin Covey company and we were two separate brands, right? We were individual effectiveness and this paper planner company. Well, over time, of course, the paper planner business, you know, atrophied, we sold that off. And now so we were kind of, you know, in this massive brand transition, you know, who are we? Mm. Our legacy brands were not serving us well. Classic case of what got us here won't take us there. So we, we were very deliberate and not trying to boil the ocean. We weren't trying to shape the opinions of a billion people. 
we got very deliberate and determined. So who are the people that we really care about understanding what we do? And quite frankly, it was like tens of millions. It wasn't billions. So we went about the better part of a decade making sure that every chief learning officer, every vice president of training, every HR leader that was in the business of perhaps hiring our services had a better sense for who the new Franklin Covey company was. We couldn't boil the ocean. Mm -hmm. So we got very clear on who are those, you know, couple million people around the world that we really care about knowing who we are. So we, we transformed our brand. We, we moved from a fairly traditional stand-up training company to be one of the leading uh, providers of online digital training. Our company has become a SaaS company in the last three years. So now you buy a subscription to all of our content. And I'm quite proud of being part of that journey. It was very rocky right? Making the transition from kind of print marketing to digital marketing and social media and being very careful about our social media brand. We, were, we relate to the game on some things, primarily because we're a conservative company and we didn't want you know, people going out, going rogue. And with a company our size with offices in like 60 countries at the time, we had to be careful that everybody was on brand, right? That you you know, to quote Subway or McDonald's, you weren't, you know, serving, you know, watermelon slices when they weren't on the menu at corporate. We had to be really careful making sure that all of these licensee partners were on brand. That's a tough challenge, right? Is corralling a lot of independent partners to make sure that they aren't ahead of you or behind you. Absolutely. And the methods that you were using to reach those business leaders or the HR leaders, what were they then and how have they changed now? Yeah, you know, they haven't changed radically. We find, Ben, that the best way to experience Franklin Covey is actually through a Franklin Covey experience. I mean, we still put on thousands of live events a year, right? Whether they're one hour or over a lunch or a breakfast or a full day. So we we try to target individuals that are in a position to want to transform their culture, whether it be through, you know, executing strategy, building effective leadership skills, productivity, you name it. We tend to do a lot of webinars. We obviously have a robust digital and social presence. At the end of the day though, the best way for us to connect with a prospective client is to have someone like yourself, right? Come to a local hotel in Dublin, sit down for a two hour lunch, really understand what is it that we're about? What are our, our, our processes? What is our methodology? Immerse you in some of our content. And most people leave pretty compelled that they want to work with us. So as much has stayed the same as has changed. Now, in the middle of the coronavirus, right, we have to find other ways. Our webinars are, of course, through the roof. We're not holding any live events, at least on a person right now. That will hopefully change, you know, sometime in the not too distant future. Definitely. And what exactly does Franklin Covey provide in terms of services or that learning platform for people who aren't aware of everything? Can you talk us through what's available? Yeah, we, 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 have to, we have deliberately not tried to become the Amazon of learning or the Amazon of training. We're very deliberate around focusing on what we think are kind of seven areas of our core competencies. And they're mainly leadership development, productivity, you know, time management, uh, building a high trust culture, sales performance, uh, customer loyalty. Those are the six corporate offerings, if you will. And then finally, we have a big, robust business in the K-12 higher ed education arena. So for us, mostly it's about building a culture where people can execute more effectively, build better leaders, 
build a culture of trust where people choose to stay and people are efficient and productive with their time. So we've been very deliberate around divesting in content areas that weren't that popular, that represented, you know, 1% of our business. And we haven't tried to be the best at everything. We're trying to be the world's best at about six or seven specific areas. Okay. So you've focused on the strengths and then built those. That's right. Yeah. Right. The company's obviously doing a work retaining key people for nearly 25 years. And it's had- true. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm not an outlier. I'm not, if you look at our executive really? team, I, if you look at our executive team, the average tenure of our executive team is 20 years. Wow. And I'll tell you that I'm often asked, Scott, why did you stay so long? I'm a dinosaur, right? At 25 <laughs> years. You know, I answer this is because our leaders, our CEO, Bob Whitman, we fight all the time, right? We don't see everything alike and kind of father, son, but Bob loves me and Bob loves my wife and he loves my kids and he cares about my success. And, you know, we don't see everything eye to eye. We don't see a lot of things eye to eye, but the fact of the matter is the man is principled. He's ethical. He's honest. He cares about me and people don't quit leaders who love them. And so Bob has built a culture here where it's hard to leave. I think organizations are, learning that culture isn't this sort of nice side thing that the board doesn't talk about mm-hmm. is that culture is as important been as EBITDA and as you know earnings per share and as important as inventory turns culture is crucial because you know right now in the covid paradi- or um, uh, epidemic yeah. we don't have a lot of choices but that's going to change and people quit bad cultures People go across the street for a dollar more an hour or down the road for a percent more commission if they work in a corrupt culture or they work for a bad boss. So if you want to retain quality staff, you want to retain high producers, you've got to build a culture where they feel valued and engaged and honored and challenged and respected. And that starts at the very top. I think it is a crucial conversation in every boardroom in America right now i'm sure sure around the world absolutely absolutely and i'd say every listener is nodding their head furiously at that one and it's not just hr speak i I, I want to clarify that right i mean i think for a decade it was hr speak no no no. this is ceo speak i interviewed joel peterson two days ago he's the chairman of JetBlue airways it's a major u.s airliner and you know joel peterson is an entrepreneur he's a venture capitalist he's a professor at stanford i mean he's as corporate as you get he is the chair of the JetBlue board and he, he talked about for an hour, all he talked about was at JetBlue, building a great culture, treating their employees well, building great leaders, high trust leaders. It was all he talked about for an hour. He didn't mention, you know, anything on the operations side. He just evangelized why he and the board and the C staff are building a great culture because that's where people want to work. They want to have a sense of passion and mission and connectedness. And it was great to hear, you know, um, someone like Joel Peterson, you know, prattle on for an hour about culture. Absolutely. That's brilliant. If I change direction slightly, you mentioned the word commission in there. How do you actually sell and distribute? Do you work with channel partners and all that sort of thing? Or what's the the system, the go-to market strategy? Yeah. So, you know, we are a public company. We're based here in Salt Lake City. We have uh, a model where we go direct to the client consumer in about 10 countries. So, we have a direct company-owned operation in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, Japan, China, and Germany, Switzerland, Austria, if I'm not mistaken. 
everything else are licensee partners. Some might call it a franchise, right? So we license out countries to high trust partners in country. We might find, you know, a former partner at Accenture or a former minister of education in a country, and then they right. choose to buy the Franklin Covey license for that country. And then they operate under our brand. But generally we have, you know, commissioned salespeople that are highly sophisticated solutions providers that are out hunting every day for clients and new logos. And their job is to make sure that these organizations have needs that our solutions exactly match. And then we put together, you know, a learning development plan for the organization and build capacity and hopefully enter into a multi-year relationship. We have consultants that work for our firm, both as full-time employees and as independent contractors. Okay. We're always hiring, always hiring high quality, sophisticated salespeople and high quality, sophisticated business leaders, operators, owners who want to act as consultants to then teach, deliver our solutions on site to clients in live, in person or virtually. Gotcha. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. And the okay. online stuff, I'm sure, continue, as you say, with the epidemic and all. It certainly um, does. Yeah. And the job is probably made easier by the amount, the range of thought leadership that you guys produce. And that's your area. So can you just talk us through exactly what's the plan, the strategy around thought leadership for what is often described as a thought leadership company in itself? Yeah. Well, made easier, made harder. I'm not sure because <laughs> you know, we, we have no shortage of thought leadership at Franklin Covey. You know, Ben, I'm, also, I'm often asked, what is thought leadership? You know, really, it's, the, it's, it's today's public relations, right? It's really, it's yeah. the, 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 the days of having a PR person pick up a phone and call a news reporter in a newsroom. There's, those are over, right? There are no reporters in newsrooms anymore. Yeah. It's really developing a mouthpiece so that we can articulate our point of view, our expertise. You know, here's a perfect example. Dr. Covey's eldest son is named Stephen M. R. Covey. He wrote a book called the, called the Speed of Trust. This is a, you know, a, a best-selling book. It sold 2 million copies. And Stephen M. R. Covey has now become a global authority on building a high-trust culture. What are the 13 behaviors common to high-trust leaders? So as it relates to that, our job is to make sure that Stephen's books are selling, that he's keynoting massive conferences, that he's on massive podcasts and radio interviews, that he's writing articles for big magazines, that we're carefully curating his latest thinking after his time in boardrooms and with uh, CEOs, that he is constantly providing access to his latest thoughts on his expertise, trust. Of course, all that's done so that clients can realize, oh, Franklin Covey has expertise on building high trustworthy leaders. That's an important part of our mission in their organization. And then they hire the company to come in and then train that content to their employees. So for us, we're not trying, like I said, to be experts on everything, right? We have about 12 thought leaders in our company that we very carefully curate and, and, and like I said, build their brands, build their social media, build their following, build their influence. We're not trying to have them have the biggest social media in the world, right? Mm -hmm. We don't do antics and hijinks and tricks and um, all that kind of stuff. We're very cautious and careful. We like our brand to be trusted and consistent. Now, obviously, you know, there are, there, it's, it's increasingly more difficult to get consumers' attention. So we have to make sure that we're relevant and attracting a new up-and-coming younger leader as well. And so that's really what we do is just constantly make sure that these 12 or so people are where they need to be speaking on the platforms that are relevant and that they're talking the language of what our prospective clients 
are having challenges around. And you're one of the thought leaders in the company quite clearly because you've got a wonderful, I was going to say wonderful book, but you've got books actually, but the management mess to leadership success. Can you tell us about that? What was the thinking and process behind that and give people an overview of the book itself? Yeah, thanks for asking. So that was my first book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. So after about 23 years in the firm, I kind of moved from behind the scenes, producer, director, out kind of on stage, if you will, because I had been doing some of that. And so I decided that I wanted to write a book that was a little bit unconventional. The world did not need more leadership books written by professors and academics. No offense to them. The world did not need more leadership books written by Fortune 50 CEOs that were great, but I can't relate to, right? I'm not Bob Iger from Disney. You know, I'm a chief marketing officer, but not of Disney, right? So I decided to write a book that was very unique in the leadership space. I didn't say it was a great book. I said it was a unique book. This is a book that was kind of raw and real and relatable. It was really my journey of making a lot of mistakes, messes I called them, that that this idea that leadership is all perfect and wraps up in a bow is just poppycock. Leadership sucks most days. It's hard. I mean, I've heard it referred to as adult babysitting. I mean, I don't call it that, but quite frankly, we've all been on both sides of that, right? We've been, we have been babysat by leaders and we have babysat people that have worked for us, right? So I can recognize that, but I picked 30 challenges that Franklin Covey has kind of curated across all of our millions of client engagements and tens of millions of profiles. I picked 30 challenges every leader faces, and I wrote a horror story in most cases around (laughs) how, how I had the wrong thing, done the wrong thing, screwed it up. And then I talked about what I would do differently, or in some cases, what I did right. And it, it went insane. It sold 25,000 copies in the first few months and it's in right. second printing. And, you know, for a no-name author, it did really well. I think because it was a fresh voice. Hey, my book's not for everybody. But I think my book is for anybody that realizes that leadership of people is difficult. And you're going to make a lot of messes along the way. And the premise of the book, Ben, is just own your mess. Everybody's got one. Everyone's got lots of them. And you know what? Everybody knows your messes. Your partner, your boss, the founder, the receptionist, your colleagues, everyone's talking about your messes. Why not just be the authentic leader that owns your own mess? Because when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. And then you open this sort of vulnerable, transparent culture, not to wallow in or to languish in your mess, but to realize, oh, you know what? you probably learn more from your messes than you do your successes. So let's create a culture of owning our mess and moving past them as fast as possible. Absolutely. That's why I wrote it. I work a lot with tech companies and one of the mantras is fail fast and then learn from that, move on and improve as a result. But you can't do that if there's that authentic leadership, the trust that you've talked about quite a bit there. There's a few lines in that I loved. Leadership is exhausting, repetitive and requires a constant stretch of your emotional and intellectual skills. What are some of the challenges that you curated and shared some of the stories about? Well, so like I said, there's 30 challenges and they range from all of our content, including demonstrate humility, think abundantly, declare your intent, place the right people in the right roles, check your paradigms, lead difficult conversations. I mean, the first dozen or so kind of congeal around leading yourself. The next dozen or so are kind of around leading others. The last eight or so are around getting results. 
they're very applicable in your professional life. They're very applicable in your personal life, right? How to, how to work with your mother-in-law, how to be a better neighbor, how to be a better committee member. I mean, they're ideally intended for business leaders, but I, I've had hundreds of people text me, post, email, how it's improved their relationship with the guy who's painting their house, right? Or the person who's washing their car or their spouse or whatever it is. So uh, the 30 challenges are leaders really, we all face in life, leader or not. Yeah, particularly now there's one thing that's challenge six, carry your own weather, especially with worldwide epidemics. And Yes, challenge six, carry your own weather. This is not a concept I invented. Dr. Covey popularized this in his book, The Seven Habits. You know, he says, proactive people carry their own weather. It's reactive people that give up their weather to other people. Uh, proactive people choose their response based on their values, not based on other people's moods or external circumstances. Now, you know, easier said than done. But the gist of it is, is that proactive people are very clear on their purpose, their mission, their value, their contribution, their worth, and they don't let other people, other situations, hijack their emotions. That when you are proactive, you are clear on what are the things that irritate me? What types of people in my life press my buttons? What are my hot topics? And you know going into a meeting, going into a conversation, going into a family holiday dinner, whatever it is, you kind of know, you know, I'm not going to let that person bring the worst out of me. I'm going to put some space between their stimulus, meaning what outrageous thing they say, and my knee-jerk reaction, which is my response. I'm going to choose carefully my response. I'm going to be in control of how I show up, how I engage, what I want the outcome to be versus flying off the handle, being emotional, saying things that may feel good in the moment, but we inevitably regret over time. A proactive person does not let someone else control their moods or emotions. And I think all of us can build that muscle over time. I advise people, make a list of all those things that piss you off. Topics, subjects, politics, friends, colleagues, and just kind of think about, okay, so you know what? Ben always irritates me at the, at the, at the pub, right? He always says this crazy thing. He's always <laughs> trashing this or that. Tonight when I go to the pub and I encounter Ben, how am I not going to fall into that trap? How am I not going to let Ben basically piss all over me, right? Or rain <laughs> on my parade. And I think, I mean, it might be kind of crude, but I think if you can kind of get ahead of those things that tend to, quote, get your goat, right? Or push your buttons, yeah. you can become a much more proactive person and carry your metaphorical weather. Absolutely. Which means you control the agenda and the conversation and the way you feel about the situations. A lot of the people that I would work with would be consultants as well. So it's not just for people dealing with directly with employees. No, and I think it's a life skill, right? And yeah. yeah. And it works both ways. If you think you're the only person that's irritated, no. You know, you're irritating someone else. Trust me, right? So you have some friendships, some relationships where you're irritating them and you're pressing their buttons and you're hijacking their weather. The same goes that way too. The more you can be aware that you're not as great as you think you are, right? I think self-awareness. Sorry, Ben. Sorry. No, yeah, I was thinking <laughs> I'm pretty much perfect. but yeah, I know. I can see it. Yeah, I can see. <laughs> <laughs> so the book itself, who should be reading it and who should be sharing it out? 
I've been in the book business a long time. So one of my pet peeves is talking with authors and agents. So who's your book for? My book is for everyone. All right. I mean, I, I think it's absurd, right? So um, I'll only say that once. My book is for everyone. But more yeah. specifically, I do think my book is for individuals that are either in a leadership role or they're being groomed for one or they're considering one or they're thinking about promoting somebody else into a leadership role. So anybody that's in an HR role that's considering building a pipeline of leaders in your organization, buy the book and hand it to them and say, read this book and basically learn from this guy, this guy being Scott Miller, because you are going to be faced with these 30 challenges, guaranteed. Maybe not the first week or the first month, but you will face all of these challenges. And if you can steer clear, of some of the many potholes that Scott Miller found himself trying to crawl out of, some successfully and some not successfully, I, I, I'm hoping to prevent a lot of pain because, you know, Ben, the statistics show that the average age that someone is promoted into their first management role is age 30. But that literally, the average age they receive their first formal leadership training, age 42. That's a bit awkward. No kidding. So there is 12 years that, you know, well-intended, enthusiastic, hardworking people are in leadership roles and they're wrecking havoc. They're doing serious damage, right? They're, they're, they're causing chaos in organizations, not because they're bad people. It's just they don't understand what to do. Yeah. I think my book is a great manual for people that are also being groomed to be in leadership. I also think it's a good relationship book. I think you can be an individual producer. Perhaps you work on an assembly line or you're an individual producer in HR. You're not a leader of people. I think it's a great relationship book on how to build your influence both in your professional life and in your personal life. Absolutely. In some ways, it's a solid parenting book. Again, I don't know what you mean because I'm a perfect parent, but yes, I'm sure some people could benefit. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a little flashback when you're talking about a situation once where a technical expert was promoted into a supervisory role, but this was a, almost 100% unionized workforce at the time, back then, in the day. The guys that nearly went on strike, and I say the guys because it was 100% male, they nearly went on strike over this person. And it was just a terrible situation around. A, this person should not have been and probably did not want to be promoted into that role. It's given no real support, training, and et cetera. So I'm imagining your book would have been a bit of a godsend to him at that situation or prior to everything yeah. going wrong. Yeah, I, I would think so. In fact, to that point, let me, let me leave you with this advice on this. I think if someone is being promoted into a role, I think it is the responsibility of whoever is deciding to promote them, whether it be the HR person or the talent development leader or the functional line leader. That person needs to sit Ben down and say, hey, Ben, man, you have crushed it at this job. You're, you're the best one in the company, right? You're doing a great job on this particular task. In fact, Ben, ben here are five things you do really well right now. But Ben, this is why we're promoting you. But Ben, let me tell you, of these five things you do really well, you're going to need to stop doing three of them tomorrow because these, these are not characteristics that you yeah. can transfer over into a leadership role. So Ben, literally, you've got to stop doing three of the things that right now that are the reason you're getting promoted. You've got to stop doing them. And, and by the way, Ben, on this side of the metaphorical T-chart, here are seven new skills that right now, Ben, you don't possess. It's okay. Few people possess them when they're moving into leadership. But these seven things, Ben, which you don't possess right now, we believe you can. 
but you're going to have to grow into these pretty quickly. Not tomorrow, but like next week and next month and this quarter. If someone had sat me down and said, Scott, here are your five or six talents. Stop doing three of them. And Scott, here are nine new talents, new paradigms, new mindsets, new belief systems. I would have been a much better leader. I didn't understand that. I just thought that my job was to take everything from, quote, the line and move it over and triple down on it. Yep. And it's totally the wrong strategy. And I think people are well-intended. They just don't understand the different role that leaders are required to, to offer. I mean, for example, right? I mean, one role of a leader is to realize that your job is to get work done with and through other people. I mentioned this. And that, that, that requires you to be more patient. It requires you to be more forgiving. It requires you to see yourself as a coach, as a role model, as a mentor. It requires a completely different level of engagement. Your job can't be now just to do it yourself and become a martyr or a victim. No, your job is to resist the temptation to say, well, if I want it done right, I'll do it myself. No, your job is to carve out time to sit people down, to coach them, model them, understand what are their fears, their concerns, their passions, and build them up and build their capacity. That's your job. And I, and I you know what? I didn't understand that. And so I just started, you know, you know, whack-a-moling everybody, punishing them until they became my clones, right? And I was, I was, I was a horrible leader, outrageously horrible. Read the book. You'll laugh. You'll cry. You'll throw up. <laughs> I'm scared but I'm inspired at the same time. So it's a nice combination. I'm going to let you go soon, but I'd love to know if we can just change tack for one moment. You have a, I don't know, a unique position in industry. You see a lot of what's going on. We're entering into uncertain times. Maybe we're always in them, but particularly uncertain. What's your advice to consultants on how to handle and deal with what's going on at the moment and into the future? Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, I would say move off of your own agenda move off of your own needs the most you can and get onto your client's agenda. You know, a great question that I've been taught to ask of salespeople is I'll say, who can raise their hand if you know your own quarterly revenue goal? Of course, everybody's hand raises. Everyone knows their own quarterly revenue goal. Keep your hand raised if you know your client's quarterly revenue goal. Every hand goes down. <laughs> I think it's a great example of, I would say to your consultants is do your best to not push your services, not push your products, move off of your own needs and move on to what your clients need. Really get into their world. You may need to change your fee structure. You may need, you may need to disrupt your own skills and learn something that they need you to know. Do your best to get into their world, whether it be a current client, a former client, a prospective client. I think an abundance mentality, how can I help you? What can I do for you? What do you need, right? Is move off of the I language and move into their world. It may sound trite, but if you're trying to find some prospects or some clients right now, or you have current clients, do you know their currently goal, their girl, their goal? Do you know what they're faced with? H how can you meet what it is they're trying to accomplish in unprecedented ways? Because the consulting business is going to be cut, decimated. If you're not viewed as a integral need to have, you might have to come in house for a while, right? You might have to actually change your fee structure. You might have to learn a new skill. You may, you may need to disrupt yourself tremendously in what you love to do or what is your specific area of expertise 
and learn something new that the client may need to reemerge as well. The, the people who are the most nimble, the most agile, the most empathetic, most willing to get off of their own agenda and get onto somebody else's, those are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. I love it. Get off your own agenda and focus on the client's end needs. Fantastic. Scott, this has been brilliant. If people want to learn more about A, your book, and B, the company itself and the services and thought leadership you guys provide, what should they do next? Sure, thanks. You can you can find me on LinkedIn, Scott Miller, Franklin Covey, Instagram. You can visit franklincovey.com. Like you, I host a large podcast called On Leadership. You can subscribe to that. The book is Management Mess to Leadership Success. You can find it on every bookseller worldwide. It's kind of hard not to find me these days, according to my wife. <laughs> and she that, that was not a compliment. She was criticizing me. <laughs> <laughs> she has you 24 hours a day, seven days uh, a week. She, do, she does. Ben, yeah. nice talking to you, man. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today on A Better HR Business, the podcast that explores the world of HR consulting and HR tech businesses. For show notes and downloads, go to www.getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. That's getmorehrclients.com forward slash podcast. Remember to subscribe and share the show with any friends who are busy growing a HR business. Thanks and see you next time.